be in the house of the Lord one more time. I am glad to see you guys, uh, those in the studio, and I'm glad to see you in the chat box. And, uh, and so we're going to go ahead and continue our series on seeking him in worship. And today we're going to look at a particular chapter in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, uh, that I feel like it's going to speak to us in a special way about what it means for God to worship him. So if you would join me in uh, John chapter 4, it's going to be in the 23rd verse. I'm going to start at 23rd and 24th verse. I'm going to be covering uh, verses 1 through uh, 1 through 30 today, but we're going to focus on, for the reading portion, uh, uh, John chapter 4, 21st, 24 to 23rd, 23 through 24. And I'm getting tongue-tied today. Y'all pray for me. <laughs> okay. If you got it, say amen. All right. Okay. So, he says, I'm sorry. Let me go ahead and start here. It says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. God's word for the people of God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes on worship, a conversation. Worship, a conversation. Let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer to go before the throne of God. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for what you've shown us in your word. Thank you that your word is still alive and that you are still, you are yet speaking still to your congregation, to your people, and to this nation and to this world, God. I pray, Lord, that we will have open ears, open eyes, and open hearts and open spirits to receive that which your word has spoken, Father God. Let our hearts be fertile ground, that it may reap a harvest of 30, some 60, and some 100-fold, Father God. Thank you for this spiritual food that we are about to receive. Let it be nourishment for our souls and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, at this part in John's Gospel, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, in the southern region called Judea. After, after clearing the temple of immoral money changers, an underwhelming conversation with the Pharisee, a secret slash secret disciple named Nicodemus, and hating disciples that, are, that were concerned about his baptism numbers, he decides he's had his fill of Judea and goes back up to the northern region of Galilee, which is his home turf, his home base. Uh, Nazareth is there, so he's Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. It is a 70-mile, three-day journey by foot. Now, in between the region of Judea and the region of Galilee is this middle region called Samaria. Jesus had to go through that region if he wanted to get back to his home turf. Now, the Jews considered the people of Samaria, the Samaritans, 
to be ritually impure and half-breeds because at some point in Israel's history, when God allowed the Assyrian Empire to attack them and take them into captivity for their disobedience. Some of the Israelites intermarried with their captors and their oppressors and gave birth to the mixed race we call Samaritans today. And there has been bad blood between Jews and the Samaritans ever since then, up until this point in scripture, since 550 years. It was, a proper, it was proper for a Jewish man to keep to himself and keep it moving as he goes through the territory. But the text says that Jesus was tired. It has been 42 miles from Jerusalem to where he stopped, which is in this town called Sychar. As the, he needed a break. So he stopped at this well that's called Jacob's Well, we know Jacob's, it's a familiar name, the God of our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is the, another name for Jacob is Israel. So he stops at that Jacob's well and sat while the disciples went to a town to get groceries. And the text says that it was about noon. Some text says it's the sixth hour, but it's high noon. So no one is out here at this time except tired Jesus, getting more tired and possibly now more thirsty as he's sitting in the sun next to a well with no bucket to draw water. And out of nowhere comes a Samaritan woman in the heat of the day with no one else is out to draw water. As she approaches, no doubt she sees Jesus. She's alarmed since she thought, she's alarmed since she thought that she would be the only one out there but comforted once she realizes that he is a Jew. The racism and sexism will keep her safe from an unwanted encounter. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, especially Samaritan women. Or so she thought. Jesus, tired and pretty sure thirsty, breaks all social norms, all religious protocol to request what his physical body requires, and that is water. And while he's physically requesting drink, the metaphorical meaning behind his request does not yet escape us. That God longs for and desires humanity to be in communion and in relationship with that which is his prized and most cherished possession and creation. Humankind is the only creature that God personally got his hands dirty for. He personally breathed into himself, into us, and made us alive with his breath, his wind, his spirit. It, you know what? It never says that God ever washed his hands when he's got through making us. Pontius Pilate washed his hands, but God never washed his hands. You can only wash off that which is undesirable, but God is proud of us, and he keeps his work on his hands. He finds and he appreciates and finds us desirable, and is unashamed to be associated with us. Somebody thank God for never washing his hands. He desires to see humankind reflect the image he's placed on us to love and be in concert and community with each other, even as he is in community and concert with himself. He desires for us to worship him. And in response to Jesus' request for physical water, this Samaritan woman 
does not respond with giving him a drink, but she questions his audacity to step over boundaries and disturb her safety net of societal limitations and restrictions. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And it is in her question that we see one of the first barriers to engaging in the conversation that is worship. The first barrier we see is a superficial barrier. A superficial barrier occurs when you let your differences, your conventions, your comfort get in the way of doing what God requires. And what exactly is it that God requires? What satisfies, what satiates, what quenches God's thirst? If we want to start, we want to look at the Old Testament, and we want to see how Micah sums it up. He says, and what does the Lord require of you in Micah 6, chapter 8, verse? He says, to act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's flip over to the New Testament. We see what Jesus says in Matthew, the 22nd chapter. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So to sum it up, what we look at, God requires that you treat him right and you treat his people, which is his creation, his image, right. That is true worship. Sometimes we can get beside ourselves and allow what we think about people, allow what we think about the Bible, what the Bible says, or what we think the Bible says, what we're used to doing, what where we're comfortable with going or what we're comfortable with doing for others get in the way of our worship to God. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes we can allow what we think about people, what we think the Bible says about those people, what we're used to doing and what we're comfortable with going and doing for others get in the way of our worship to God. Isaiah, the 29th chapter and the 13th verse says, The Lord says... These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. As a matter of fact, they said God is saying that worship from them is perfunctory. It is rote. It is autopilot. And it, has, it is void of any meaning and purpose. And as such, is void. I wonder if we have settled for a superficial definition of worship that only amounts to what we do on Sunday. I, I, I wonder, have we limited our worship to only our voices, our words, our, and our dances, and have not graduated to how we treat people that are not like us, that have not been blessed like we have been blessed, that disagree with how we see the world, that do not value what we value, have we moved past our comfort zones to make heaven on earth for somebody in the life of another person? Because when it's all said and done, our adoration of God for one hour on Sunday falls flat if we're not coupled with the right action in the remaining 167 hours of the week. So what does God require? Above any song, above any prayer, any sermon, any money we can offer to him, it is that we treat him right and that we treat each other right. 
This Samaritan woman allows superficial differences to distract from what a tired, thirsty Jesus required. And what was Jesus' response? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I, I, I like Jesus. Because he, he flips the script on this woman. And he says, one of the reasons that we don't take our worship seriously because is because we neither understand nor recognize what God truly has in store for us when we draw near to him. When we understand all the peace, all the love, all the joy, all the favor that God wants to freely give to us, it wouldn't be a chore to follow God. It would be a privilege. It wouldn't be an obligation, but an opportunity. It wouldn't be a command, but an honor. If you had any clue about God and how he wants to empower you, how he wants to equip you, how he wants to enlarge you, how he wants to enhance you, there would be no question as to where your alliances would lie. There would be no question as to your priorities and your preferences. We would have living water. If we decide to shower God with what he requested of us, our worship, our daily lives, we will receive that which we never knew we needed to request. This woman did not know she needed to request living water, but because, but because God, because she had to answer the question of give me a drink, she, she almost missed out on what God had in store for her. At this point, the lady still isn't buying. She says in the verse, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us his well and drank it from himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Now Jesus has to not just deal with the superficial barrier. Now he's dealing with the skeptical barrier. It is this person, the skeptical barrier, is the person that doesn't believe God when he doesn't behave like we think we should behave to get us what he says we need. She says, if you're going to give me living water, where's your bucket? Is, that, is, is, is what you're able to do better than what has been done through our father Jacob? It is the skeptical barrier is an unwillingness to believe because of an inability to perceive just how God's going to do what he's promised. It is defining the miracle on your terms. If you're not, you're saying to God, if you're not going to come through the way I've seen you come through before, if you're not going to come through the way you came through in the, in the form of Jacob, it's hard for me to take you at your word and worship you. You're going to give me peace without changing my circumstances? You're going to have, you're going to give me joy even when I have no job? I'm supposed to believe I'm whole even when I haven't been healed? How are you going to do, how are you going to do what you're going to say you're going to do in my life when my path doesn't fit the pattern of how you blessed those before me? My mom and Mary, it says my mom and Mary, dad got married right out of college. I'm 38, single in the middle of a pandemic. Are you greater than what I've seen you do before? You're going to grow our church even when we can't meet on Sunday? I never shall forget. For years, I felt that God had 
given me a pastoral gift, but I doubted that it would ever happen because I didn't, didn't seem like that my life's path was preparing me for that. One day I was in church, got to a point that I was in church hearing someone preach that I felt, and I felt that he had, he was a peer, he was, we were about the same age, and I felt that he had the life trajectory I considered legitimate for a pastor. He went to seminary, he was a pastoral intern under a well-connected pastor, which means he got to preach at a lot of places. But in the middle of my envy session, God said, do you want what he has or do you want what I got for you? In that moment, I had to repent. And I had to, instead of envying this preacher, I began to celebrate with him where he was in his journey. And on that day, I accepted that if God was going to do what he promised me, I, it, that it would be on his terms, not mine. I stopped being skeptical of God and believed that the promise didn't have to come according to someone else's pattern. So this lady had a skeptical barrier. And Jesus responded this way. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water building up to eternal life. In other words, Jesus says, if you go after what I've done in the past, it won't sustain you. It won't keep you. But if you worship me by faith for what I want to do in you, what I put in you will sustain you and will make, and you will make you a source of blessing for those connected to you. So when I worship you, when I worship God, when I walk with him according to his word, I stand to receive all I need to both function and flourish in his will for my life. When I worship God, my life will be the gift that keeps on giving. So this Samaritan woman, at this point, she seems to believe. But she still doesn't quite get it. Ain't that sound like us? We have get the revelation, and we just need a little push to come along. But in light of what Jesus says, she says this, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water again. Did you catch that? She believes what Jesus says, but only perceives it for as it relates to the natural realm, to her senses, to what she can physically taste, touch, see, hear, feel. So now Jesus, after having dealing with the superficial barrier and after having dealt with the skeptical barrier, now he has to deal with the sensual barrier to worship. This barrier is based on worshiping God for what he can provide in the physical realm. This is where our worship is relegated to his ability to give us cash, cars, clothes, a cottage in the countryside, a creature comfort, stuff that appeals to our five senses. We can even predicate our worship on whether or not he can deliver us from our present, present situation. The sensual barriers where we don't do right or obey God for right's sake, but because we believe there is a physical reward attached to it. You want God, but only as much as he's able to alleviate your current situation. There's nothing, I'm going to give you straight, there's nothing wrong with having stuff or wanting to have a better life. God wants to bless you right where he wants you, and he wants to take you where you can be better than where you are. But in the midst of what we think we need in our lives, we have to refocus on the things that really matter. And Jesus does this with the Samaritan woman. 
He says, go call your husband. Come back here. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, because you have five, and the one you got is not yours. Now, I'll be honest, I've heard this preached uh, several times, and the, and the prevailing assumption is that there is some immorality on this woman's part, that she's run through so many men and, and settled for the situation that she's in. But let's take our 2020 eyes off this text, our 2020 eyes off this text, and get a grasp on the status of women in first century Israel. Women were property. They had no say in the marriage at that time. Particularly the only way for her out of marriage was for the man to initiate the divorce or die. So that means for this woman to have had five husbands, they would have either divorced her, died, or a combination of the two. And the one she's with now may merely be for survival since no decent life for a woman could be had outside of a connection to her father's house or another man, whatever the arrangement may be. So the focus ought not to be on this woman's immorality or her looseness or whatever pejorative we were tempted to assume about her. Jesus didn't. He merely stated the facts without any judgment. But the focus is whatever caused this woman's situation, there's brokenness there. There's rejection there. There's injustice there. And then there's bitterness and resentment for how her life turned out. There's shame there. It's one of the reasons why she comes to the well at the sixth hour, which is noontime when no one else is out. I'm sorry, but if, if I'm going to be out, uh, it, it's, it's too hot for me to be ashamed of coming in the nighttime, not in Texas. And Jesus is saying, in, a, in relation to all that she's going through, he's trying to refocus her in saying, that's what my living water is for. It's for all of that. Not the money, not the Mercedes, not the mansion, but it's for what really matters. For the wholeness of your soul. This woman has been trying to physically survive in a system that has been set up against her for so long that she was never able to address what she really needed. And when you hung up on getting with God for stuff, for survival, you'll never get what you truly need for your life to be whole. So the woman seems to be picking up on where Jesus is going. This is a spiritual matter she's, she's sensing. And as such, she presents to Jesus this last barrier to worship, the spiritual barrier. Spiritual barrier. She says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. I perceive that. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now this spiritual bar barrier is where we behave as if worship must take place at a particular location. During the time of this pandemic, I am grieved at the response of many churches who have decided to still gather when it may, and in some cases already have, cost their congregations their very lives. There have been pastors that have died from COVID-19 because of this spiritual barrier, this line of thinking that we must physically meet to be a church at any cost. This belief that God will protect us as we throw caution to the wind to do what he has never required us to do. When you act as if worship must take place at a particular location, when you make it a mandate and condition to the people to accept it as the norm, 
you impede the understanding of what Jesus accomplished on the cross in the first place. In the Old Testament, God dwelt at a place. He dwelt in the tabernacle. We call it the tent of meeting, the, the dating place. It, that, that came first. And then later on, it got a permanent structure called the temple. In the Gospels, we see God in a person. He's transitioning from a place to a person. And that person was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lives. He dies on the cross. And at the moment he died, the veil, the curtain in the temple that kept the presence of God from mere humanity was torn from top to bottom. That method signifies that humanity did not tear up the veil to go into God, but that God tore it down so that he can come out to us. And then, then after that, Jesus ascended to the Father. 120. After he ascended to the Father, 120 people in the prayer room were filled with the Holy Ghost, signaling that God now resides in his people, and as such no longer needs a building or a tent to commune with him. God dwelt within. And this is what Jesus is saying to the woman in response to her spiritual burial. He says, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. You, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour in coming is coming and is now here when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You want to hear that again? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So worship is no longer a question of where, but a and it has not been a question of where for the last 2,000 years. It is not a question of where, but a question of how. How are we to worship now that God is everywhere and lives in us? First, we see that God, that worship must happen in our common reality. The essence of who God is is spirit. The essence of who we are is spirit. That is who we truly are. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience, but we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Mm -hmm. You are not a body with a spirit. You are a spirit with a body. True worship begins that when I am aware and I confess to God who I truly am. I have not deceived myself into thinking I am something I am not. I am a spirit, a mere breath that merely only exists because he breathed me into existence. And as much as we have in a body may deceive me into thinking I could go anywhere and do what I want, the truth is I am a spirit. And one day I must go back to God. So how dare I think, speak, and behave as if I have any control over my life? How dare I be anything other than what he has made me to be? When the woman admitted I have no husband, she admitted the truth. She confessed that she was a result of circumstances that were beyond her control, and that she was in need of the living water that could heal all that she had been through over the years. The brokenness, the hurt, the pain, the rejection, the bitterness, the injustice, the resentment, 
God wants us to worship him honestly, humbly, bringing to him all that is in our spirit. And when we share with God what is in our common reality, which is spirit, we can then worship him in truth, which is his communicated revelation. As I relate to God who I'm truly am, God begins to reveal to me who he truly is. God does not reveal to himself the people he don't trust. Let me say that again. God does not reveal himself to people he does not trust, that he cannot trust. After this woman answered truthfully about who she was, Jesus revealed who he was to her. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, that when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And right there, Jesus says, I am he, the one speaking to you. And after that, the disciples came, and she immediately ran to the town, leaving her water jar at the well, because she doesn't need it anymore. And she says to the men that she finds in the village, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Jesus, you see, Jesus could trust her with the revelation. Now contrast that to his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 who came to him under the secrecy of night and who still doubted what Jesus said. Jesus did not reveal himself to Nicodemus because Nicodemus was not trustworthy. Can God trust you with his revelation? Can you be trusted with his truth? Do you walk out the truth that he's already shown to you? Because that's what completes our worship. Even when we behave according to what God has already shown himself to be to us. My oldest nephew some time ago, some years ago, said something that stuck with me to this day. I was saying something related to the need for a revolution. And he said, just off the cuff, at the drop of a dime, he says, we don't need a revolution. For a revolution is 360 degrees. We will end up right where we started. But what we need is a revelation. And I think that with all that's going on today, we do not need another revolution. But we need to seek God in our worship, to lay our spirits bare before him and share in our common reality with him and receive a life-changing revelation, a revelation of his kindness, a revelation of his holiness, a revelation of his goodness, a revelation of his power, a revelation of his righteousness, a revelation of his love, a revelation of his wisdom, a revelation of his mercy, a revelation of his peace, a revelation of his joy, a revelation of his long a revelation of his faithfulness, a revelation of his gentleness, a revelation of his sovereignty, a revelation of his salvation, a revelation of his perfection, a revelation of his anointing, a revelation of his sufficiency, a revelation of his supremacy, a revelation of his resurrection, a revelation of his return. So let's throw off the barriers and let's engage in the conversation. The world is 
shown us in your word. Thank you that we're able to commune with you that which we have in common and that is your spirit. And I pray God that as people in their rooms, in their houses that they are, as they are still distraught about not being able to meet together, that we still don't forget to meet with you. And that we have that power and we don't need a building. And that we can meet with you where we are and that we can move past all of these barriers and worship you in spirit and in truth.